guys. Welcome back to the Chaotic Storytime podcast, Salt Lime Storytime. I'm Jess Nani, and this is my co-host, Allison Hillman. Big Al, it's lovely to see you today. Yeah, pleasure's all mine, Jess. I'm charmed. Charmed, uh, I'm sure. Gorgeous. Gorgeous as always. I would love to hear how your week has been, though. Can you tell me how you are doing? Uh, great. It's a Monday when we're recording this. So I had nine hours of being in corporate America today and it was lovely. Uh, I had a great drip coffee. Otherwise, you know, a pretty, pretty uneventful week on my end, getting ready for the Easter holiday, always a good time in my ex-religious household. But uh, otherwise, you know, nothing too exciting. I've got moose on my lap and an ice cold cocktail in my hand, drinking out of a literal sippy cup. A moose in her lap, she means the wild animal that lives in Alaska. It's like <laughs> insane. I can't even see her. Like, this <laughs> moose is being so quiet. I don't know how. It's like eight feet tall. Definitely not my cat moose. Just the no, animal. no, it's in a, a literal moose in her apartment building. So I'm proud of you. Good for you. Thank you. Allison, I know you've had kind of an interesting week. Do you want to talk about it all? Uh, yeah, sure. I won't go into details too much because it's not really my place, but all I will say is that I have had a very difficult week and I kind of wrote something out for it just so I could put my thoughts into words a bit better. Um, I won't go into details, but I do want to say that if any of you are struggling with feelings of suicide, please take a moment to reflect on the life you have lived. More people than you could possibly know love you and would be devastated by your passing. You know how you have fond random memories of people that have no idea you even think of them? Except that you are that person for others. There are strangers out there who still think of you because you showed them kindness in a low moment in their lives. The kid in class who had a crush on you but was too embarrassed to ever tell you still wonders how you're doing. You have touched the hearts of hundreds and you would be missed by people you don't even know have a reason to remember you. One of my all-time favorite poems is by Shane Koiksan. You can listen to it on YouTube. It is called Instructions for a Bad Day. One line that always stood out to me most is, quote, know that now is only a moment. And if today is as bad as it gets, understand that by tomorrow, today will have ended, end quote. Sometimes all we can do is get through a moment. Pain is temporary and we only have one life. So please, please, please don't take yours. Um, The number for the National Suicide Hotline is 800-273-8255. You also have friends, family, and loved ones who would be more than happy to help listen. And as always, therapy is a wonderful resource for those struggling with depression. Your life will never get better if you don't give it a chance. So please, please, please keep going. Thanks, Allison, for sharing that. I know that it's been a rough week. And like we said, we won't go into details, but um, I'll just echo those sentiments and, and appreciate that you took the time to write that out. Yeah. And it definitely could have probably been said better, but that was just, you know, there's obviously a lot of thoughts, feelings, and emotions going around. And I've unfortunately known several people who have passed in this regard in the past and it never gets easier. And it's every single time, it's just as much of a punch in the face as the last. And, it's just as devastating as the last. And I can guarantee you that if you think only 10 people would care or less, times that number by a thousand, because again, you have no idea how many hearts you've actually touched. And 
the world is not a better place if you're not in it. So anyway, on that super upbeat, positive, happy note, Jess, do you want to introduce this week's topic that I forced you to do because I'm insane? Absolutely. Absolutely. This week's theme is natural disasters. And I know you are particularly excited for this week's theme, but I will say as I was writing and researching, I remembered how much I like the topic that I picked mm-hmm. and like had all these recovered memories from middle school when I made it my yes. whole personality for two weeks. And it was very exciting. So I'm also, while this was your your topic decision, I am absolutely stoked to talk about mine. Because do you want to go first or do you want me to go um, first? I think technically you're first as much as I want to go first because I'm obsessed with my story and I just like love talking and I'm so excited. I'm like vibrating with excitement. Um, I think it is your turn, but also I do. So what triggered this for me is one of my favorite classes in college was my natural disasters class. It was such a blast. And I, I mean, in a, in a way that it was, of course, it's really scary, but it's so interesting. And of course we live in Utah, a place where there's like a bunch of earthquakes. And so I was always like really obsessed with that kind of thing and like all kinds of natural disasters. It borderlines the same sort of obsession with plane crashes. It's up there, not quite as much, but it's up there. And so there was a one particular documentary that I watched that I was like, I have to report on this, but it's funny because that's actually not the one I ended up doing. I will do that story soon, but this one's even better. Anyway, with that being said, Jess, could you tell me first what you are drinking today? Yeah, I am having a gin Ricky, very limey, very ginny, not the Harry Potter character, but like as in gin. Sure, sure, uh, sure. Very tasty. I'm drinking it out of a Costco confetti straw cup that my lovely boyfriend's mom gave to me in a game of bunko with her lovely friends i got to sub in at a bunko night and if you've ever been to a bunko night with a bunch of middle-aged women i highly recommend it it was a grand time i was too bunko i have never heard of that in my life okay bunko is like a girls only women only game night it's been going since the 1800s there are all of these like group rules and stuff that I think vary group to group, but basically you pay to play. Everybody brings like five to $10 and the winner takes all kind of thing, but it's a dice game. It's like a really fast paced dice game. They used to play it in like parlors while the men would smoke cigars and drink whiskey and talk about how to keep the patriarchy upheld. But sure, sure. Uh, it's primarily played as I said, by like moms. And it, it was a delight. It was so fun. Had a grand time. You get to scream. There's a bell. Oh, good. Two it's of my all... favorite things. <laughs> Actually, you'd hate it. <laughs> yeah, you're probably uh, right. But it was really fun. It was a good time. I had to leave my car at my boyfriend's parents' house because I got too drunk to drive. I can't imagine being so comfortable with my partner's parents where I will go and hang out with them without my partner. Yes. That is very bizarre. It gives me so much anxiety because like the thought of even doing that with some of my ex's parents makes me just quiver, like truly. And so it's, that's really amazing that you're so close with them. I know they love you. They're, they're great people. I'm really lucky. All this to say, I'm drinking this gin out of a cup that looks like it was made for a five-year-old. 
in the best way. I love it. Confetti, it changes colors, the temperature. Wait, can I see it? Oh, oh, nice. Oh, it looks like one of those like Starbucks cups. Yes, yes. I'm Shout out fan. Costco, but it changes color with the temperature. That's so the confetti cool. in it changes color. It's fun. I'm a big and way. I'm, I'm drinking like a Moscow Mule. Thanks for asking, but it, um, <laughs> we, I made we it myself. Yeah, no, you're good. I it doesn't have any fresh lime in it because uh, all my limes have gone bad. But I did make it with Cointreau, which is the best way to make a Moscow Mule. I, the best thing to possibly make a, mo- a Moscow Mule is obviously uh, Fever Tree ginger beer, Cointreau, and vodka. Cointreau makes it have this just delicious orangey flavor and it's my favorite way to make them because I'm not like the biggest fan of vodka every time I drink it I want to throw up so if I can taste the vodka it's a big it's a bad time so making it with a little Cointreau is very helpful well now that we've digressed like 16 miles off course Allison do you remember where you were when you saw the classic film 2012 yes yes i do (laughs) i was in the basement with my brother we were watching it together oh love that i I, you would have watched that movie with kyle very very specifically all right so you're a person with adhd actually diagnosed i am a person with self-diagnosed adhd thank you tiktok I was very fixated on this movie when it came out. I will, I will openly admit, I watched that movie obsessively. And the scene that always sticks with me is when the dad is like driving in the car as the firebombs are raining down on them as they're frantically trying to get out of like whatever area in America they're in. Sure. But like the absurd, are you, do you you remember the scene? Oh, I'm completely (laughs) picturing it. I think I rewatched it somewhere recently their dumb little blue car and he's like mm-hmm. dodging yeah. <laughs> yes john cusack's like all right y'all mind if i ball out for a second bleak image right them driving through this field away from these firebombs but the absurdity of them trying to escape nature is like so omnipresent in that moment and i think it really captures the insanity of like our humanity or like the humanity's will to survive very beautifully and also like I've had a thing for John Cusack for a long time. Like, since I was uncomfortably young, I've been into John Cusack. Since this cultural reset moment in my life of when I watched 2012, the same year that 2012 came out, that psycho movie Numbers also came out. Do you remember that? With Will, what's his face? The I'm going to steal the Declaration of Independence. What is his name? Oh, (laughs) Nicolas Cage, our Lord and Savior. How actually dare you? my apologies my was the love of my life <laughs> schmize the s- smile on that man's face alone i i can't every one of his movies cheers me up no matter what's what it's about because i just laugh my ass off the entire time anyway keep going sorry did you just say, <laughs> did you just say nicholas cage is the love of your life yeah in like a really unlovable way where he's just so absurd. Everything about him is so absurd and doesn't make any sense. And he's like the worst actor of all time, but it's like it works for him, you know? But also kind of good. 
We yeah, I don't, it's a weird time. He's There's nobody else like him on this earth, and I respect that. Anyway, I forgot Nicolas Cage's name. Apparently, Allison is obsessed with him. I did not know this. Well, I'm obsessed, this together. but I do enjoy <laughs> National Treasure. It's, as you, one might say, a national treasure. A national treasure. I appreciate that. Okay, so bringing it back. Since this moment when I watched the 2012 documentary, or not documentary, oh my god, since I watched the movie. Documentary of when all of our lives ended. <laughs> um, I So there's like a lot of geological, natural disaster things happening in that movie, but one of the things is that the Yellowstone caldera is going to erupt. Mm-hmm. And I have been obsessed with this concept ever, ever since. Also, around the same time, I had a sub in eighth grade who showed us a low-budget dramatic reenactment film of what it would be like in America if the Yellowstone Caldera were to finally erupt. And my best friend at the time and I made it our entire personality for like two weeks. We were so obsessed with quoting this film at each other. I'm sure if I went through like my old notebooks from like that we used to pass in middle school, I could find references to this. Like we were obsessed with it. So when you suggested this theme, I immediately was like, how can I cheat and do one that hasn't existed yet? Mm. (laughs) So naturally we're going to cover a natural disaster that hasn't happened. And we're going to cover what would happen if the caldera under Yellowstone erupted. And I hate to tell you this, Allison, but it would be really, really bad news for the world. Mm, I could have guessed. It would it would make global warming feel a little bit like it was kind of pussying out. <laughs> sure, sure. I believe that. All right. So we're going to give you a little history here. Yellowstone National Park is a trendsetter for multiple reasons, but mainly because it was the first piece of land ever designated a national park in the world, which I did not know that. I don't know if you did, but it's the first first one. It officially became a national park in 1872 and helped pave the way for the other 62 national parks in the United States, not to mention the 6,000 plus state parks throughout our country. And Utah is home to a lot of those. So Yellowstone really paved, paved the way. She's a trendsetter. Um, Yellowstone contains over 2 million acres with a diverse set of geological and natural features. And thanks to the magma chamber that stretches 37 miles long, 18 miles wide, and 5 miles deep that runs along the Wyoming section of the park. This magma chamber helps fuel the geysers, the hot pots, the springs, and a lot of the unique landscape that you see throughout Yellowstone Park. Geologists have identified three eruptions from the last two million years or so that created this caldera, and there's a few around it, like the Henry Henry's Fork caldera that's like over, like under the Henry's Fork River, kind of on the um, Island Park side, and a couple of others. And most notably, the most recent eruption was about 64 or 640,000 years ago. And since then, the caldera and the surrounding volcanoes have been considered dormant. So there's no, there's no indication that it's really like another eruption is going to happen soon, but based off of the timeline between the past three eruptions, we're about due for another one if that trend were to continue. However, scientists say that like earthquakes, they can't predict that and there's no such thing as we're likely due for an eruption. But is that's not fun for the story. Real fast. Where is it located? Isn't it Wyoming? Yes. So it's under, 
it's primarily under the Wyoming section of the park. So like, if you look at a map of it, like the corner that is owned by Wyoming. Got it. Is I knew it was in the middle of like a couple of states. All right. Yes. Yeah. So Have Yellowstone. Oh yeah. I love Yellowstone. It's one of my favorite places. Hmm. I would love to die there. Sure. In an eruption. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I, I went there once when I was little and I just, all I remember is that it smelled like rotten eggs and I kept crying because it smelled so bad and I hated it and I was being forced to do physical activity. Um, so I need to go back now because I probably would whine maybe like two times less. <clears throat> we'll go sometime. I really love Yellowstone. I've been a couple of times. It's one of my favorite places in the world. I think it's beautiful they it's like very unique because you've got all like the geological features like old faithful and like the grand prismatic spring and all that good shit but like the other side of the park like more into montana and idaho are just like these insane mountains and rivers like it's just it's just very beautiful country so i'm gonna quote wikipedia for just a second because they wrote this next part way better and explained it way better than i ever could so to quote wikipedia and its various authors the upward movement of the Yellowstone caldera floor between 2004 and 2008, almost 75 millimeters, about three inches each year, was more than three times greater than ever observed since such measurements began in 1923. From 2004 to 2008, the land surface within the caldera moved upward as much as eight inches at the White Lake GPS station. And in January 2010, the USGS stated that the uplift of the Yellowstone caldera has slowed significantly and that uplift continues to be at a slower pace. Uh, the University of Utah and National Park Service scientists with the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory maintain that they see no evidence that such um, cataclysmic eruption will occur at Yellowstone in the foreseeable future. But for about four years, the ground was literally rising in Yellowstone because of the caldera. Mm-hmm. And these people were like, fuck, 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 fuck. <laughs> but then... <laughs> It stopped. So supposedly we're good. We're, we're good. I will preface all of this with like, we're probably not going to die. But what would happen if the caldera built up enough pressure to erupt? To put it lightly, it would really fucking suck. So mm-hmm. we're going to kind of do this in the order of like what would happen as this eruption occurred. So first off, the labs that monitor the caldera would have warning signs that the eruption was coming, primarily through seismic activity. There'd be a ton of earthquakes, which Yellowstone already experiences a lot of earthquakes, but like full scale, way more than they are used to at a lot higher frequency and a lot higher intensity on the seismic scale. Like it would be that way for many weeks and months, even months leading up to it. So we'd have a lot of warning that something was going to happen but we wouldn't necessarily know how bad it was going to be. So that's kind of part of the scary thing is that they could say to America, hey, something's happening in Yellowstone, but like we wouldn't know how much to prepare for because you can't Mm. predict that shit. So the day of what they would call a super eruption, which is like worst case scenario with this, the day the super eruption would happen would be catastrophic to the surrounding states to start with while the actual magma this is really interesting while the the magma itself would only travel about 40 miles so it would stay within the park and would be kind of kept to a relatively small location geologists theorize that montana wyoming utah colorado and idaho would pretty immediately be wiped out and covered in at least three feet of highly dangerous volcanic ash 
volcanic ash isn't the same as the ash left over like in your fire pit when you're done camping. I know this is pretty obvious, but like I did not think about this until I started researching. So uh, we're going to get into the weeds here for a second. So please bear with me while I talk about ash. (laughs) Volcanic ash specifically is incredibly hard and porous, meaning it can travel far distances and also cause a lot of damage because it's got like ridged edges. It's made like partially of glass. It's also got like toxic fumes in it. It's really bad, bad news. When it's breathed in, the ash causes immense irritation in the lungs and makes breathing super difficult. In large quantities, it's heavy enough to collapse roofs and destroy electrical grids. They estimate like three inches of this is kind of what starts causing that. So three feet of this ash in an urban area would completely destroy cities um, and like full, full ecosystems. It would wipe out and it can also cause heavy rainfall because it basically like creates its own weather system. And that leads to uncontrollable mudslides because it's causing rainfall in areas at times that wouldn't normally happen. So like the volcano itself would be a natural disaster, but that it would also cause all these other types of natural disasters like fire and mudslides and earthquakes. It's literally like all of the natural disasters wrapped into one, except for maybe like hurricanes. (laughs) So not good. Um, They estimate that in a worst case scenario eruption, about 90,000 people would die immediately upon eruption and an estimated of 5 million people would die in the hours and days following from like a multitude of side effects, whether that be lack of food, injury, all that, all that good jazz. Beyond the Rocky Mountain states, a few inches of ash would coat the Midwest and even the coasts would see some ash in the air. I looked at a lot of different maps and the only the tip of Florida would be spared an ash coating. So maybe we should stop knocking on the South of Florida because in this scenario, they'd be good. (laughs) Yeah. But they'd be getting pummeled by like 18, like hurricanes at the exact same time. So you got to pick one (laughs) and they have alligators or oh my god or crocodiles which one do they have both crocogators crocogators (laughs) i know there's a difference but i don't know what that difference is i think it's i think it's alligators but they might have both but i think it's i think i think crocodiles are more south america it literally doesn't matter (laughs) (laughs) we're thinking about this so hard i know okay So aside from the destruction of cities, transportation would be nearly impossible with all the ash in the air and on the ground. All air travel and road travel would have to be suspended immediately. Even just a few inches of volcanic ash make flying or driving impossible, and it's super difficult to clean up. There was a bunch of pictures of um, different eruptions that have happened, even just like on a small scale, and like how they've had to clean up ash it takes so so long and it causes just so much destruction yes yeah. Allison. yeah okay so one thing that i've always learned is that volcanic ash will literally immediately cause the plane to crash because it'll like gunk up the engines and it'll make them stall and they like can't get them started again and i don't know if this is true i can't remember but i think that most flight paths go around volcanoes just in case there is an eruption because it is literally so catastrophic if volcanic ash gets into jet engines. Thank you so much for your time. <clears throat> ding, ding, ding. How many minutes did it take Allison to bring up a plane crash? 
I'll probably bring up a few more. Don't worry. I love it so much. So this is kind of what makes this so catastrophic as well, is that even if people survived the initial eruption, kind of in those central states that I was talking about, rescuers couldn't get to them because there's no transportation. There's no getting in or out like those images that you see in apocalypse movies where like they're on the freeways trying to get out would not be an option. You are literally stuck. Like there's no moving. You are where you are. Our economy also would essentially shut down immediately because, and all food would become scarce very quickly as the infrastructure of transportation infrastructure of the United States would be completely gone. So unless you lived in an agricultural area where this food has been made and was already stored, you're SOL. So globally, temperatures would drop about 10 degrees and it would cause havoc on agriculture worldwide. So even though what they like, even if you were on a different continent, this would affect our climate around the world for decades and decades to come. Um, they believe an umbrella of ash would cover most of the United States and span even larger than that, blocking the sun's rays to the extent that the equivalent of a nuclear winter would set in. Humans would have to rely on food storage, adjusted agriculture practices, and greenhouse-style farming in order to continue producing food because they wouldn't be able to do so outside because the world would basically plummet into the next ice age. Um, from a class standpoint, only the very wealthy and those who serve them would be able to afford to eat for many years. Animal production would be greatly decreased as well because there's not a way to feed the animals and they also would experience illness from breathing in volcanic ash. Overall, not good. Yes, Allison? I think I remember this exact same documentary that you were talking about. I remember watching it in eighth grade and the thing that stuck with me the most is the animals will or survivors will inhale, like they'll get a disease from inhaling the gas or the toxic fumes. And I can't remember what it's called. It's like Maria or Mariah's disease or whatever. Sorry if you're going to get to this, but it'll cause rapid bone growth. And basically like your bones will just grow and keep growing again. Then you'll die because your bones are growing so fast. And so that's how a lot of the animals would die. I can't remember what that's called. That's literally just a recall memory I have from eighth grade, <laughs> like a long time ago. But I remember that because that fucking disturbed me so much and it would happen during this eruption. Okay, so I must have blocked that out because I did not remember that. <laughs> that Eighth might not be scientifically me. true, but I think I think it is. Eighth grade me trauma blocked that if that's the case, because absolutely not. So the UN estimates that the world would run out of food in just under two months. They also estimate that it would take at least a generation to find any sort of beginnings of recovery from the event, and the U.S. in particular would never, ever recover. It would be completely, human life couldn't live on it in the way that it had for hundreds of years. So, pretty bleak shit, frankly. Mm. Any questions for the class, Allison? I mean, you know I do. So it would mostly just be the volcanic ash and the gases that would kill everybody. Yes. That would the, eventually get around. It would like fall around the world, wouldn't it? Yes. So, and even if it didn't fall where you were at, the amount of ash in the atmosphere is what would cause that catastrophic temperature drop. So 
Um, right. Jesus. And it's all, it's all related to the ash, like the magma, like you'd think like lava would be the concern. No, no. Ash is the concern. Ash and like pyroclastic flows, girl. I'm telling you. I know. I know. It's crazy. So lucky for us, it's super unlikely that the caldera will explode in this catastrophic manner. One of the articles I read said us getting hit by a life ending meteor is way more likely. So going the way of the dinosaurs is more likely to happen than this caldera to have enough pressure build up that it explodes to this level. It's much more likely that if the volcano erupts at all, it does so in small spurts. So kind of like on the similar level of Mount St. Helens or something like that, where it's more of like a normal volcanic eruption and they would have a lot of warning prior to that again because of the seismic activity and they also study it very very heavily so that's the thing is like it's scientists are very well informed of what's going on it's actually really interesting nasa has researched what it would take to stop this potential eruption if one began to come to the surface they used this theory that simply cooling the volcano down would stem the likelihood of eruption. And they even proposed drilling several strategic wells into the caldera to start this process. They proposed pumping cold water into these wells to create a section of cool rock around the chamber and start to contract it. So it becomes smaller and more likely to go dormant. In turn, they would be able to create energy from the steam that would be produced as they were cooling the caldera down and they could turn it into potentially sustainable energy. So it'd be like a geothermal grid that would power the United States. They said like tens to thousands or tens to thousands of years. So could be, could be cool. They think it would cost around $3.6 billion, which seems kind of low to me. Am I crazy? No, you think it would be like a a shit ton, like a billion is a lot, but you think it would be more yeah but despite this low cost apparently because allison i think 3.6 billion dollars is low this will likely never be implemented there's a small chance that the process of drilling these wells could actually trigger an eruption and the cost to energy creation ratio is it would take about sixteen thousand years to even out the costs that it would take both between like manpower resources and like obviously the money is part of it but the like grid that they'd have to set up to turn it into a sustainable energy like it would take 16,000 years of using that energy to make it like even out the environmental costs that it would have so basically moral of the story here is let's just like ne- hope this never fucking happens while we're alive or humans are living in general. I think I'd rather go the way of a meteor and like get it done. Mm-hmm. I, I listen, I've read the road. Sure. I don't need to live in this bones growing faster than your skin can keep up with it. Bullshit. Yeah, no. Not not happening. That's like a hard what's, pass for me. Yeah. Not not it. And what's crazy, so like I read at the beginning of this year, I think it was in January, I read this book called Leave the World Behind by Ruman Alum. And it's not about the Yellowstone eruption, but it's like basically about the concept of what the first couple of weeks would be like if America entered nuclear war and all of the communication, like the internet went down. 
And it was a super insane kind of think piece, but basically the in it the family that's the main character they like don't know the world is ending because the internet's gone down and they're like so reliant on the internet to tell them what to do getting it for a source of news so they're in this like rural area on the east coast and when the nuclear warfare begins and you don't even you as a reader don't really know what's going on beyond that like there's nuclear warfare happening and they just like the group that they're with just like starts dying and they, nobody knows why and they can't get cell service and they're nervous to go back into the city because they're like, well, we don't know what's going on. The internet grid's obviously down. And they just like, the the characters like have a barbecue and are like talking about what they're going to do when the internet comes back up. And like in the epilogue, you like find out how all of them die in the coming weeks and like what happens to the animals around them and like all this stuff and they're just like in this state of delusion and also in the epilogue it talks about like how people who lived on the opposite side of the country like where there wasn't nuclear war yet like continued to work for a couple of weeks even though they didn't have the internet like people who could still do jobs on the internet like continued to work as if nothing was going on it was crazy oh i'm really upset so, like, imagine just, like, oh a random God. Wednesday and, like, if we just, like, didn't get notified that this eruption was happening or something similar like this was happening and you were just, like, in the tip of Florida where you're not getting ash, just, like, Voila. imagine imagine being, like, a Disneyland character. Like, you're playing Tinkerbell at Disney World and several thousand miles away from you, Yellowstone is erupting, but you finish your day of work because you don't know any better. I really don't like it. Nuclear warfare scares the shit out of me. Yeah. And it's also very relevant in today's world. I know. So, uh, yeah, that's what would happen if Yellowstone erupted. And let's just really hope that it doesn't. And, uh, yeah, that's what I have for you. (sighs) Well, I am significantly stressed. But (laughs) that was very well done, Jess. Thank you. Okay. I'm going to list my sources really quick. My sources for the story were an article from The Nerdist, the National Park Service webpage on both Yellowstone and what would happen if Yellowstone erupted, because yes, they do have one. Uh, Article from Vox, an article from the National Geographic on volcanic ash, and an article from How Stuff Works, as well as my memories from eighth grade and the documentary, which I could not find the name of. Well, let me just... Okay, you ready? Jess? Ow. I have a question. Okay. You you really like to travel, don't you? God damn it. <laughs> yeah. How much do you want to travel to Japan? Um, It's on my bucket list, but it takes forever to fly there. And I hate flying, so... Maybe That's one fair. day. And probably even um, longer if you go by boat, which you might want to not do either in 2011 when they're about to get hit with the fourth largest earthquake in the world. Jess, I'm about to tell you about the 2011 Tohoku earthquake and tsunami in Japan. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to hear yeah uh i will 
start this by saying I'm not going to do that cute little quirky white person thing where I purposefully mispronounce the names because I think it's funny. I swear I am actually trying to pronounce these correctly because it's respectful and I think it's the correct way to do it. And I'm a cultural anthropology major. Maybe that's why I care so much. But this was a an enormous disaster. And I hope that I did it justice in researching it. Anyway, with that being said, Jess, let's go back in time. On March 11th, 2011, at 2.46 p.m., a magnitude 9 earthquake struck 42 miles off the coast of Japan. The earthquake lasts for six minutes. Shaking is felt throughout the entire country up to 1,500 miles from the epicenter. It is the most powerful earthquake ever recorded in Japan and the fourth most powerful earthquake in the world since modern record keeping began in 1900. If harnessed, the seismic energy from this earthquake would power a city the size of Los Angeles for an entire year. According to the U.S. Geological Survey, the earthquake moved Japan's main island eastward by eight feet and dropped about 250 miles of coastline by two feet. Okay. Did you just it, say it moved the entire island uh-huh. eight feet? The entire fucking island moved eight feet and dropped by 200 feet. <laughs> For those of you that can't see Jess, she just pulled an entire blanket up to her chin and is hiding inside. Yeah. And dropped 250 miles of coastline by two feet. Like Japan got rocked by this earthquake. Okay. And so Jess, you know how I sent you a link and told you not to open it for a while? Would you do me a favor and go and open that link now? And if you do, can you please go and skip to a minute and 30 seconds? All right. And for those of you at home, and if you'd like to watch this as well, go to YouTube and look up 2011 World Earthquake Visualization Map and jump to a minute and 30 seconds and press play. So Jess, would you like to play this and play it into the microphone? Yes. Okay. yep so basically you get the gist it shows all the earthquakes all over the world and they're just kind of showing up like ping 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 here and there and then march 11th 2011 hits and it's like it's an explosion yes they got and it's just like and it also shows you all the aftershocks like japan Mm -hmm. got literally fucked and so i recommend that everybody goes and watches 2011 world earthquakes visualization map on youtube and jump to a minute and 30 seconds to see it because it's fucking insane i watched that video in my natural disasters class in in college i literally remember it i remember it to this day because of that anyway all right so with that being said you have a visualization of how actually fucking insane this earthquake is okay and again this happened in 2011 so everybody had cell phones, video cameras, there was surveillance footage everywhere. So throughout Japan, you can see video footage of sidewalks sliding past each other and the ground bubbling as water lines burst. Roads turn to liquid, buildings crack, and skyscrapers bend and sway like they're made of jello. In Tokyo alone, thousands of buildings are damaged. A roof collapsed on a college graduation ceremony, killing two people and injuring 25. So three minutes after the quake, again, which lasted for six minutes of shaking, 
which is just an upsetting amount of time. So three minutes after the quake, officials released the first tsunami warning. A tsunami is a series of large waves triggered by an earthquake on the ocean floor. And so if you'd like to come to Allison's like fucking shitty science class for a minute, I'm just going to give you a quick rundown of like plate tectonics and whatnot. So basically the earth is made of tectonic plates, which plates, which are literally continent sized slabs of rock rubbing against each other. And that's what causes earthquakes. Tsunamis occur when one of those big plates is sliding underneath another and the one on top catches on the one sliding underneath. Okay. And it keeps bending and bending and bending until it slips back off, shooting the slab upward and back into place, simultaneously creating an earthquake and causing immense amount of water displacement. And that's what causes the tsunami waves. Okay. So that's how tsunamis start. So these waves can be so devastating to coastal villages and towns as there is usually very little time between the earthquake striking and the first waves hitting the shore. Because like I said, the earthquake and the tsunami basically start at the exact same time. The Japanese- Hate this so much. I know. I know. You're going to hate it even more, trust me. So the Japanese, more so than any other country, understand the severity of tsunamis. Like tsunami is literally a Japanese word. The J- Japan is right on a fault line where they get a lot of different earthquakes and tsunamis. So they're no strangers to them. And more so than probably any other country, they're extremely prepared. And- all coastal towns were equipped with tsunami walls, wave breakers, warning sirens, and evacuation routes to get residents to higher ground. That day's coastal defense was built following the Chile tsunami of 1960. That tsunami literally happened across the world, but it still was so devastating that it like it, it traveled across an entire ocean and reached Japan. That's how bad tsunamis are. Like it doesn't matter where in the world they happen, they can. <laughs> It's they're so fucking scary. So they were prepared. Uh, Japan was prepared to deal with tsunamis, most likely to occur repeatedly, but not the worst tsunami possible. And absolutely, nobody could have imagined the nightmare that was just minutes away from Japan's shore and approaching fast. With that being said, let's talk about the tsunami. And there we have to. Um, I can just we can just call that good. Actually, thanks for coming, guys. Um, another episode of Saltline Story Time. So, I got a lot of different information on this. Obviously, I watched a bunch of different documentaries, researched a ton of different things, and there was it was there were kind of differing opinions on which place got hit first and at what time. But the place that I think was most commonly said was hit first was Sendai, the city closest to the earthquake's epicenter, and it was inundated by waves as high as 23 feet, traveling at speeds up to 435 miles an hour and going as far as six miles inland. And I read somewhere that residents of Sendai had only eight to 10 minutes of warning and more than 100 evacuation sites were washed away. Okay, so if they had eight to 10 minutes of warning, the water is traveling at 435 miles an hour. It's traveling six miles inland. You can't get away from that. Like, there's nothing you can do. Okay. And most places were hit within like 20 minutes or 20 to 30 minutes. And so that's still not enough time to really get out. So, yeah, so more than 100 evacuation sites were washed away. So people that thought they were safe were actually not. Several miles to the north of Sendai, the waves devastated the fishing village of Otsuchi. More than half of its 15,000 residents are dead or missing. 
Boats are seen resting on top of apartment buildings. Cars and semi-trucks are seen tumbling in the waves like sand. Families watch in horror from higher ground as their homes are ripped from their foundations and swept out of sight. Gas lines rupture and power lines fall, setting the already destroyed towns on fire. Burning debris floats all around, making the waves themselves appear to be on fire. In one of the many videos I watched of this event, onlookers are heard screaming at those on lower ground to run and come to the hill. One man is heard yelling, make it stop, make it stop. There's literally nothing you can do but scream. He literally said that. One of the men interviewed in this documentary literally said there was nothing you could do but yell. So... Kuniku Suzuki recalls running from the tsunami in the town of Minami Sonriku. Quote, even though we saw the car passing by to warn us, we didn't think the tsunami would actually reach us because we lived quite far from the ocean and we were on a hill. When we started running, we assumed we'd be able to outrun it. But what happened was the wave completely swallowed us up. I was desperate. Fortunately for me, soon after I was swallowed by the wave, a roof drifted towards me and went under my body as if it was trying to pick me up. End quote. So soon after she uh, floated by the high school and from there, people were able to pull her off the roof to safety. She was really lucky that a literal roof from a house came and went under her body and lifted her out of the water. That is insane. Yeah. Oh Uh, my gosh. It's so much worse. Ready? All right. So Yuchi Owada was a volunteer firefighter in the town of Rikusentakata. He was at the shore when the tsunami hit. He filmed a video where you can see the waves crash over the 16-foot-tall tsunami levees and start to pool around his feet. He runs back to his fire truck with only seconds to spare and continues ordering residents to evacuate over the microphone. In the video, he's heard yelling, run, it's over the levee, move, 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 it's come over the levee, hurry, hurry, hurry. In Riku Zentakata, the tsunami killed more than 1,700 residents, which is about 8% of the population, and destroyed 80% of its residential areas. More than 70,000 trees in Takata Masubara pine forests on the waterfront that were planted in the 17th century were washed away. On March 14th, three days after the quake, the Mainichi Daily News declared, Riku in Takata has been erased. To make matters oh worse, God. yeah. To make matters worse, shortly after the tsunami hit, it started to snow heavily, which greatly hindered rescue attempts. Tayo Kaneta, the reverend of the Sudai Temple, said, quote, the snow wouldn't stop falling on those drenched survivors. I was completely defeated. Why is nature being so cruel, so merciless to people who are already suffering? End quote. So for instance, uh Ishinomaki, the city with the most deaths, was zero degrees Celsius or 32 degrees Fahrenheit as the tsunami hit. And on top of that, a nuclear power plant in Fukushima was damaged in the initial quake, then crippled in the tsunami, causing a nuclear meltdown and several explosions which released radiation into the air and water. Residents within a 12-mile radius of the power plant were forced to evacuate if they didn't already have to evacuate because of the tsunami. Very low levels of radioactive chemicals that leaked from Fukushima have been detected along the North American coast, offshore Canada, and California. Oh. My God. I didn't know that it was, like, considered wintertime there. Like, when I, because I know the story, I'm pretty familiar with it, but, like, I didn't know that it was, I, whenever I've thought about that, I've never envisioned it being cold. 
Like, I didn't know that. That's, like, a whole other added level. That's insane. It's in the Northern Hemisphere with us. So it's just as much as you would like to go swimming in early March. Yeah, it, it was so, it was really bad. And then on top of that, there was a nuclear meltdown. Like these people cannot catch a break. All right. All right. So in total, the tsunami reached a maximum height of 131 feet. Kesanuma port was submerged in almost 40 feet of water. Completely gone. Completely gone. One man got caught up in the tsunami. Okay. And I'm just going to say, I'm going to, the next two stories I'm going to tell are pretty sad. They they talk about the loss of loved ones and families, but I, so many people experience that. I think it's important. And I'm just going to talk about two of these. So I just wanted to give you guys a heads up that they are really sad. So one man got caught up in the tsunami and survived quote, the morning after the tsunami, I found out that 54 of my coworkers had died. I felt like I was in hell. I never want to experience that again. End quote. Kazuya Sazaki survived the tsunami and later found the body of his eldest daughter in a bamboo forest draped over a tree. He said, quote, it looked like she was sleeping. She looked so beautiful. There wasn't a single cut on her face. End quote. The body of his wife was found a three-minute drive from that of his eldest daughter's. A week or two after the quake, they were cleaning up the debris and he was looking for the body of his infant daughter, which he did eventually find. So just like people had lost everything their families their children their homes their cars their like everything was completely flattened it was so devastating and this leads to the question how many people actually died the answer as of an official report released in 2021 said that there were 19,747 deaths with 6,242 people injured and 2,556 people still missing. And a report from 2015 indicated that over 200,000 people were still living away from their home in either temporary housing or due to permanent relocation. Among the factors in the high death toll was the unexpectedly large water surge. Like nobody could have predicted how bad the tsunami was actually going to be. The seawalls in several cities had been built to protect, like I said, against the tsunamis of much lower heights. Also, many people caught in the tsunami thought that they were on high enough ground to be safe. According to a special committee on disaster prevention designated by the Japanese government, as I said before, the tsunami protection policy had been intended to deal with only tsunamis that had been scientifically proven to occur repeatedly. The committee advised that future policy should be to protect against the highest possible tsunami, Because tsunami walls had been overtopped, the committee also suggested, besides building taller tsunami walls, also teaching citizens how to evacuate if a large-scale tsunami should strike. And kind of jumping back to the power plant failure, part of the reason why that was so bad is because the nuclear power plant failed, there was a shortage of fuel and electricity, so the crematorium wasn't functioning. Yeah, And like I just said, over like 20,000 people died. And this is a really big deal because in Japan, bodies are traditionally cremated. They're not buried. And so these poor grieving families were forced to bury the dead in the ground until they could be exhumed and cremated when the plants started working again. So like not only is there already so much pain and suffering, but these poor people couldn't even lay their loved ones to rest for a long time the way that they felt that they needed to. 
or the way that was like culturally yeah. right for them uh oh my god all right kiyoshi kenibishi is a professor of sociology at tahoku gakuyen university in sendai and he said that unlike americans families who lost loved ones in the tsunami do not seek out grief counseling for fear that it would make them forget their loved ones a majority of japanese people are buddhists who believe that the ghost and human world overlap the analogy i saw was they see the spirit world like shoji the paper walls popular in japan they believe the veil of death is that thin, and once a spirit passes through to the other side, you can still see them, just like a silhouette on the other side of the paper wall. If a person's spirit is looked after at death by a family providing a proper funeral, praying for that person and visiting the grave, then the deceased is able to pass peacefully into the next world. From there, the dead look after the still-living relatives providing help and protection. People who die suddenly, violently, wronged, or alone are another matter their unpacified spirits might return to the world of the living in search of satisfaction and answers can you see where this is going i i don't want to like derail but i've actually listened to a i think it was a this american life podcast episode where they talked to a family that lost several people like several loved ones in the tsunami and they talk about this if i'm remembering it right the family set up what they refer to as like a grief telephone box so they could go and talk to their loved ones that they like felt like weren't fully passed on yet basically update them on their lives and try to help them like find peace wherever they were so they like leave voicemails for their their loved ones i'm probably butchering the memory of this but um it was kind of for that same reason of like they didn't feel like their family had gotten to pass over properly and it was like their way of dealing with it yeah it's so hard and so sad but the craziest thing is this is actually leading to a series of ghost encounters all right yeah uh uh-huh So I got most of the following information from episode four, volume two of Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix. The episode is called Tsunami Spirits. It is wonderful. I recommend you go watch it. But first, listen to this because this is going to be a great time. All right. So three months after the tsunami in June 2011, Shuji Okuno, a journalist and author, visited the destroyed fishing village Ishinomaki, where most people died and started hearing rumors of ghosts. By October, there were dozens of accounts surfacing, so he started documenting people who had supernatural experiences. He would spend the next two years documenting the ghosts of the tsunami victims. So, one day, a man named Endo reached out to him. On the day of the earthquake, Endo visited a shelter to see if his mother was there and was told to wait there for her. While he was waiting, he saw an older woman looking out the window wearing his mother's clothes. He approached her to see that it was indeed his mother. Relieved, He took out a camera to take a photo of her to show friends and family to prove that she was safe. But after taking the photo, he lowered the camera and the face he was looking at was no longer that of his mother's, but a stranger he had never seen before. It turns out that the microbus his mother was on had been washed away by the tsunami and she had died. And this happened around the same time he took the photo in the shelter. One woman lost her three-year-old son in the tsunami and was really struggling with his passing. She suffered from severe depression and panic attacks and admitted she no longer wanted to be alive. However, 
One night at dinner, she called his name to invite him to join his parents and sister at the table. That's when his toy train went off as if an answer to her call. The train's horn is only operable by pressing a switch. It is impossible for it to turn off and on without any force. The woman said the incident reminded her that her son is always with her and it gave her a purpose in life again. Another woman was cooking dinner one summer night, a few months after the tsunami, when a sopping wet stranger knocked on her door asking for a change of clothes. She went off to find something, and when she came back, a whole host of people in winter clothes were standing there, all of them soaked to the skin. Oh my god, that literally just like gave me cold chills. Mm-hmm. One resident of Ishinomaki, a woman named Kansho Aizawa, spoke of the spirits after the tsunami. She said, quote, after the earthquake, they wanted to go home, but the city had changed so much. Spirits didn't seem to know how to find their homes. Many of them didn't know how to contact their families. Lost souls don't have a place to go, so they asked people on the streets for help, end quote. She said that she had been able to see the dead since she was a young girl. She recalls thinking everybody could see them and talk to them just like she did, but obviously they couldn't. To her, the dead appear quote, as a slightly transparent reflection through a glass window. So as she grew into an adult, she started to come into her gift even more. Shortly after the disaster, she said she was driving and came upon a group of young men who were killed by the tsunami. Quote, they didn't seem to know they were deceased, but I knew they were no longer living in this world from how they appeared. I could have simply ignored them, but I felt sorry for them, so I stopped. I asked them what happened. One of them said he wanted to go home, but he was lost. I had to tell them the truth because I didn't want them to suffer anymore. I said, all of you have passed away. End quote. Holy shit. Uh-huh. And Professor Kanabishi, who I mentioned a little earlier, he's kind of a skeptic when it comes to paranormal experiences, but he said that the most believable accounts of supernatural experiences were from taxi drivers due to the fact that there is physical evidence from the driving meter that they actually happened. I've never thought of that before. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. One particularly vivid account was a story of a woman who got into a cab months after the tsunami and asked to go to the Miyagi district, which had been completely destroyed. After the cab driver informed her of Miyagi's destruction, the strange passenger then looked at him and said, have I died? I cannot fathom having that direct of a conversation with like a past spirit. Uh huh. And many other taxi drivers reported similar occurrences. All right. One said that in August, he saw a young man in a heavy winter coat hail his cab. As the man entered the cab, he sensed something odd about his presence. By the time the driver made it to the man's destination, the sun had set. And when the driver looked in the back seat, the man was gone. There are several taxi drivers that have similar stories of passengers disappearing out of the back seat for no reason. And because many of the drivers had lost loved ones in the tsunami, they said anytime they see the dead, they are happy to give them a ride to wherever it is they desire to go, even though it is at their own cost. The thing that's so interesting about all of these is, like, usually when you hear, like, these these types of encounters, it, like, kind of leaves you with some heebie-jeebies. But the thing about all of these is that, like, I think that all of the people having these experiences are genuinely understanding their role in this person's or the spirit's journey that they're helping Mm -hmm. get to wherever they're going and I really admire that relationship to these spirits yeah no I 
I completely agree. Like they really came into their own. And, you know, one thing that bothered me is a lot of people were like, well, these are obviously just like PTSD experiences, but it's like, that's a super dismissive of these people and what they're actually going through. It doesn't make sense. And also for the story I'm about to tell you, which is not nearly as benign as all those other ones seem to be, this does not seem to be a case of PTSD. And I'll tell you why. So one night, Reverend Tayo Kaneta said his wife called him to the front door. A woman was there, seemingly very ill. The woman said, quote, I feel so many people inside me and I can't stop them. Please help me, end quote. The reverend said that possessed people he had seen in the past were incomparable to this woman. Her personality would change whenever she was possessed. He asked her if she had lived near the disaster zone and experienced a tsunami or, or if anyone she was close to died in the disaster, but she said no. This woman, Ami, herself, had nothing to do with the tsunami. However, she had always been sensitive to spirits, but it wasn't until one year after the earthquake that tsunami ghosts started invading her life and her body. So, in an interview later, the woman, Ami, said that it was so painful she just wanted someone to kill her. She felt the spirit of a girl crying inside her and the spirit of a man who was holding the girl's leg and wouldn't let go. As soon as the reverend grabbed Ami's feet, the spirit said, who are you? The reverend responded, I am the reverend of this temple. The man in Ami's body responded, what is the reverend doing here? Ami could hear and see the man yelling and screaming. She said it was terrifying. By praying and burning incense in front of the Buddha, Ami was finally released from this possession. However, this was not the only visit. She would often come back around 7 p.m. and would visit, and her visits would last until 2 or 3 in the morning. One spirit was a little girl that had to let go of her brother's hand. She could hear her brother saying, Sis, I can't run anymore. But his sister wouldn't respond to him because the water was right behind them. Ami could see, hear, smell, and feel everything, even the touch of her brother's hand. The girl saw her brother being washed away. The reverend spoke to the little girl. Through Ami, the little girl reached out for the reverend's hand. But after he grabbed her hand, the girl yelled, no, let him go, and started yelling, mom, mom, I want my mom. Yuko Kaneda, the reverend's wife, had witnessed all of these possessions, including this one. She said the little girl was searching everywhere for her mother and wanted to apologize for letting go of her brother. At that moment, Yuko acted as that little girl's mother and grabbed her hand. She said, quote, mom is right here. I will never let go. You are always here with me. Let's walk towards the light. Everyone is there waiting for you. Then Ami was finally able to let go of her hand and relax. The Reverend went on to explain that he doesn't believe Ami is mentally ill. She is just more sensitive than others. He says that when big disasters like this happen, people's awareness expands, allowing them to see what shouldn't be seen and hear what shouldn't be heard. What he did with Ami does not follow traditional Buddhist teachings, and many monks have criticized him for it, but he doesn't care. Quote, when I see a woman who's suffering, I feel obligated to help her rather than worry about my religious beliefs. I don't feel like any gods would get mad at me. I think they'd say, good job. And I, yeah, I agree. Like, kudos, my guy. So today, he encourages people to talk about their experiences and support each other. Many are afraid of the victim's ghosts, but he tells those people, quote, these ghosts aren't scary at all. They appear in front of you because they worry about you and they long for you. There is no need to be scared. If you see ghosts again, tell them you are dead. There is a world for you to go to. We are still living. We will remain in this destroyed city and we will make sure to revive and restore our relationship with this city. Do not worry about us, end quote. 
So a full decade later, Japan is still rebuilding. A 41-foot-high concrete seawall now stands along the waterfront at Frikusen Takata, and more than 265 miles of seawalls have been built up and down the coast. Engineers and construction crews have carried in massive amounts of soil and rock to raise the level of the land by almost 33 feet before new buildings were constructed. And local officials launched a project in 2017 to plant 40,000 tree seedlings along the town's coastline. And that is a story of the 2011 Japan tsunami and the ghost encounters that followed. I, like, am so... The ghost side of that is so fascinating and I like I'm pretty familiar I've watched a documentary on the tsunami itself but like the ghost side of it and like how they dealt with the loss as a community is so interesting Mm -hmm. oh my gosh yeah no this whole thing was so devastating and so out of left field like they couldn't like they were prepared for tsunami but they weren't prepared for like a monster of a tsunami. Like they weren't prepared for one that was like above anything else they had ever experienced before. And just the fact that, again, this happened in 2011. So there's so much footage, hours and hours and hours of footage just on YouTube of this earthquake, of sidewalks sliding past each other, of buildings waving in the wind, which is like so fucking scary. The last thing I want to do on a skyscraper is wave back and forth really aggressively. And that's what all of them are doing. And there's videos of people sitting on top of their cars as their cars fly down the streets in a rapid pool of metal and wood and cement and like water. And like there's like yachts crashing into apartment buildings, crashing into buses, crashing into cars, crashing into houses, crashing into people like it is a nightmare of a situation and there's video footage of all of it and it is so upsetting and so hard to watch and it's so scary because like what what do you do like you can't do you can try to get out but you can't really do anything you know and like you know that one man lost his entire family and so many people lost their families and there are people that sat there and watched their entire lives like watched their houses flow by them and had to explain to their children that we don't have anything. We don't have anything now. And I can't, I simply cannot imagine that level of like that magnitude of loss. You know, like if you get in a car accident and you lose your car, that's comprehensible. If you house fire is incomprehensible, let alone a disaster like this, that destroys your entire town. Yeah. Everybody you know and love and everything you own completely gone. Like, I just, I can't believe these people got through it and are on the other side. I really can't. And some of these places are still rebuilding. Like, I read an article that Ruku Zentakata, uh, which was, like, completely destroyed, they barely, barely reopened the beach last year. Oh, my gosh. 11 years later they barely reopened yeah. the beach last year like that's how long it's to and, and here's the thing salt water is not good for agricultural land like mother nature really said fuck you everything about you and your farmland it's going to be impossible to rebuild it's going to be impossible to regrow like it it's just i can't know if you can hear the train passing out my apartment right now but 
it i just yeah there it is <laughs> it'll only get louder i love city life anyway i just yeah this i have always been horrified by the story it has been on the stuck myth with me and after i saw that unsolved mysteries episode forever ago when i first came out I literally remember every minute of watching that for the first time because I was just so captivated and it's so interesting and I highly recommend you go watch it. And that being said, my sources for this uh, were 10 years after the tsunami article by NASA, Wikipedia, Unsolved Mysteries, Season 2, Episode 6, Disaster in Japan, a documentary on Japan's great tsunami disaster, and you can find that on YouTube. Um, Witness Disaster in Japan, a documentary on Prime, and an article called Ghosts on the Shore. I like documentaries because they plant more of a visual in my head that I can kind of type out. But yeah, so there you go. Wow. I, the ghost thing is going to stick with me for a really long time. I actually think that I half watched that episode of Unsolved Mysteries because what you were saying, there was a couple of them, like the photo- the photograph one. I remember watching that one. But I think that I only was like half watching um, when I binged that show. So I'll have to go back and rewatch that episode because that's so crazy. Good. So yeah, Jess, that was what I chose for this week. Do you want to tell the people what you chose for next week? Oh, baby. So next week will be a 3-2-1 shots. But the week after that, I wanted to take Allison down a journey that she is not as familiar with as I am because she didn't grow up LDS we're going to do pioneer stories. And while I grew up hearing these, I am so excited to tell you some of the unhinged things that my ancestors had to or endure walking across these plains and into Utah. There's going to be some ghost stories. There's going to be some mm. Nani Whitaker family history. I'm so excited to see which one you choose. I'll probably talk about Trek. I cannot wait. I literally, Uh-oh. I suggested this episode when we were brainstorming the podcast, like the very first time we started talking about it. And I have been like, oh, so excited. So if you're really, really uh, into listening to what a person who never grew up listening to Pioneer Stories and another person who is an ex-Mormon, their take on Pioneers <laughs> get real excited <laughs> But uh, yeah, cannot wait. Oregon Trail, let's do it, baby. We're also going to count how many times I make a dysentery joke at Allison. Yeah, I've been preparing myself for that one. It will be more while. than three. Yeah, it'll <laughs> definitely be more than three. I, I will also have to probably make a couple at myself. So can't wait for that. It'll be Thank great. you, Jess. Thank you, Allison. Well, we will see you guys next episode for some three, two, one shots, and we'll chat with you then. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye. 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 Bye.